interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Hey everybody and hello humans. This is Not A Robot Comics Podcast. My name is Josh and with me here today as usual is Brandon. We also have Nathan on loan again from the Comic Herald. And we all got together today to interview a comic book creator behind a plethora of amazing titles from many different publishers. The Violent from Image, from Boon, Sons of Anarchy, one of my personal favorites. Uh, Beyond the Breach with Aftershock, a whole mess of titles like Marvel, Old Man Logan, Iron Fist, Ghost Rider, and more, as well as some very cool projects at DC. He's a master of down-to-earth character-driven stories with really captivating story concepts and excels when writing for capes. So without further ado, please let me introduce to you our very special guest, Ed Brisson. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Ed, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Uh, this has been a long time in development behind the scenes. I think we've been chatting since like September. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just, I'm so excited that we finally have been able to lock in a time to chat. So how are you doing yeah, today? Not a bit beer. Yeah. And, and sorry about that. I had a, a weird situation where all my, uh, as I mentioned in email, all my work sort of bobbled me. Uh, all at the same time so everything kind of got caught in the machine and and finally now it's all coming out again and and because before there wouldn't be a whole lot i could talk to now there is stuff i can talk to so it's much more exciting again we're we're just happy to have you really absolutely thanks so much for coming on the show today ed we are all huge fans of yours but now that the introductions are out of the way let's get to why we are huge fans of yours and for that, I'm going to turn you back over to Brandon to kick us off. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I guess the place that I kind of wanted to start today um, was something a bit more recent, although not too recent. Um, but I, I thought it was a, a kind of a good way to uh, start for the, um, for the afternoon and then kind of transition to some other things. And the first thing I kind of wanted to look at was um, you recently had a... a very successful Kickstarter um, for Murder Book Catch and Release. Uh, congratulations on that. Um, and I, I kind of just wanted to sort of um, get your you know, thoughts and, and opinions on sort of managing that Kickstarter and, and how it all kind of came into, uh, into shape initially. Because um, obviously you kind of started with um, Murder Book and self-publishing, but this is a, a bit of a, a newer venture for you working with the Kickstarter, I believe. Yeah, so... As you mentioned, Kickstarter, sorry, not Kickstarter, Murder Book was one of the first things uh, that I started self-publishing. It's actually far from the first thing I started self-publishing, mm-hmm. but the first thing that I self-published where I wasn't also drawing. You know, I used to write and draw and letter and color all my own stuff, um, and then sort of stopped everything except for for the writing. You know, the lettering for a while. Murder Book was always this sort of it was kind of I had given up on trying to break into the comic. I just thought it wasn't going to happen anymore. And so I just started sort of doing these short crime stories because I love uh, writing crime. And I didn't think it would go anywhere because publishers had always told me that crime was itself. Thing. So uh, I did, you know, murder book short stories for 10 years, which is uh, what ended up getting me my work at Marvel, my work at DC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so actually, sorry, I had done them for about five years. 
and and then stopped for about five years. And it always meant to get back, but because I've had I've been so busy with the two work at, at mostly Marvel, uh, I had I just didn't have the time. And so you know, nature came along, the pandemic just shut down everything, and all of a sudden I had copious amounts of time on my hands. On my hands, and uh, so I just kind of went back into murder book and started writing. And I, I kind of went in blind, not knowing. Uh, I was trying to. I'm, I'm a big fan of Elmore Leonard, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I know I, I had read interviews with him where he talked about how he would just sit down and start writing books without really a comprehensive outline and just kind of see where the story took him, which always seemed absolutely insane to me. Uh, to sort of <laughs> sit down and write without an outline. I always thought it was a little bit of bullshit, maybe. Um, but, you know, I figured I'd give it a whirl. And so I, I sat down. Uh, I didn't have anything else going on. And just spent about a month and a half sort of writing and rewriting uh, the script for Catch and Release. Um, and uh, I'd already talked to Lissandra uh, of Theron, who came in to draw it, to see if he'd be interested in working on a book. And had an idea that, you know, I'd always wanted to try Kickstarter mm-hmm. for a book. And since this thing ended up coming out, you know, it's about 70 pages, um, which is kind of tough to bring to a publisher. There's, you know, there's, again, during the pandemic, publishers weren't even looking at stuff. Uh, so it, it seemed like a perfect opportunity to sort of try Kickstarter, see um, if that might be a way to sort of fund things you know, going forward. I had sort of an idealistic view of maybe doing a Kickstarter once every six months or so to do these sort of books. Um, that was, you know, quickly sort of squashed as soon as I started doing this because, uh, as everyone had warned me, um, uh, and uh, what I thought I could naively sort of handle much better uh, because of my history in self-publishing is that Kickstarter is is really a beast. Like running a, a, a yeah. project or <laughs> running sure. a campaign, yeah. uh, dealing with all this stuff afterwards, it's it's a lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've sort of abandoned that idea since, but uh, I'm still I'm still you know actively writing murder book scripts. Um, there is a plan in the works for how I can get these out, but uh, that is uh, sort of not uh, something I can talk about right now, I guess. But uh, you know I'm still working <laughs> on it, I guess. Definitely. But I don't know if I answered your question. I know I kind of skirted around it a bit there, but no, I, no, I always I... like. I like Kickstarter as a platform. I think it's it's really interesting in a way that like sort of just go directly to readers, especially stuff like crime, you know, which not always doesn't always have a massive uh, audience. It's got more of a niche audience. The beauty of Kickstarter is you can appeal just directly to that niche audience and and make a go of it. Yeah, no, I I mean, first of all, I I do think you answered the question. Um, and I, I also think you kind of gave an interesting perspective on just, you know, kind of how you approached Kickstarter as uh, a platform for exploring um, publishing comics work and, and obviously crowdfunding comics work. Um, but I, I think just kind of looking at that perspective um, is, is a really great way to kind of segue into the past, which is what I was hoping to do um, and kind of turn back the clock a little bit, um, which I'm sure... Some of us wish we could all do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, just kind of turn back the clock to around that time where you really first self-publishing Murder Book, um, because I had the chance to actually read Murder Book last summer. Um, it was my copy. Awesome. Um, yeah. And I, I think the thing that just really um, stood out to me about 
just going through all the stories was, um, I'm going to steal the word that uh, that John Suntress used, um, but it's just how efficient they were and how effective they were as these really tight, really self-contained, really personal crime stories. Um, and I guess I was just sort of wondering, how did you kind of conceptualize your approach to that kind of, of crime story? Because obviously you can have a, a long, drawn-out narrative. You can have something that's really personal, um, but you can also have these really tight, really personal, really emotional character stories that hit just as hard and just as well as, you know, something that might be longer. Um, and, and I, yeah, I guess I was just kind of wondering what was your sort of initial concept to that approach um, as you were sort of, uh, you know, choosing this idea for self-publishing? Uh, so the, uh, the boring answer to this, uh, the realistic and boring answer is that uh, it was just more fiscally responsible to do uh, shorter <laughs> stories. Uh, when I <laughs> started doing murder book was uh, not too long before I left my day job. Uh, so uh, a bit of background. So I, I, I was working a day job up until the end of uh, 2010. Uh, I started doing murder book in April of 2010. Um, I left my day job at the end of 2010 because I was lettering comics on the side. Uh, so I was doing a lot of books over at Image, uh, a bunch of stuff at owning. I was doing a, a ton of manga mostly uh, is where my work was. And so I was making enough that I could quit my day job and just focus on that. Um, and I wanted to still, like I wanted to write comics. That was the end goal was just to write comics. And uh, so when I started Murder Book, I had already done a few pitches to publishers. Uh, and for anyone listening who might not know, usually what a pitch looks like is you put together a concept which is sort of the the bare bones outline of what, what the series is, you know, what it's about thematically and, 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 and uh, story-wise. And you would usually get a cover and five pages of artwork done, uh, letter, color, et cetera, et cetera, and send it to a publisher in hopes that they will publish it. And, you know, back then, I think there was like, you know, like four or five viable publishers that you could pitch to. And once that pitch had sort of run its course, if nobody picked it up, nobody had ever seen this, this story you were working on. And I think I'd done about four or five at this point and hadn't gotten, um, I'd gotten very close a couple of times. And at one, my closest was the editor-in-chief of, of a fairly large indie publisher uh, had greenlit one of my pitches. Uh, liked it, et cetera, et cetera. And then a month later, he stepped down and the new editor-in-chief. Oh, oh, no. I'm, I'm green, let it. Um, anyway, but uh, the frustration I was feeling was that I was, I was, you know, at that point, I'd created 25 pages of, of story you know, with artists that nobody had seen. And I wasn't getting anywhere with pitching. And I just kind of got frustrated. And so in 2010, on my birthday in 2010, I, I was just frustrated with where I was creatively and decided instead of pitching books, I was just going to do these black and white crime stories. I love writing crime stuff. And I was just going to put them up online. It was like a year to show and prove, right? Like just a year to write this stuff, uh, do short, quick stories uh, with like sort of a, you know, crime stories with almost like a Twilight Zone-ish uh, twist to a bunch of them. And just put them up online for free for people to read and just sort of rather than uh, 
relying on publishers. I would just sort of rely on, on myself and the artists I was working with to get my voice out there, to get these stories out there, and just sort of prove that I could do this both to myself and to others. And, you know, it ended up really working. It, um, Murder Book, when I started putting the comics up for free, uh, started to get attention almost right away. And I would sort of print um, like floppy editions that would feature two murder book stories each. Because uh, I think at that point, there were about 10 to 12 pages. And I would just bring them to cons with me when I went to cons and on the table and sell them. Uh, and then it gave me something to sort of hand out to editors and such. So it gave me uh, a portfolio which is difficult for writers to have because, you know, no editor is going to sit down and read a comic book script. Uh, whereas, you know, an artist can walk around with a portfolio under their arm and show it off and you can immediately sort of see, uh, see their skills. So yeah, that was, that was sort of the concept behind it. Just take a year to show what I could do. Uh, black and white crime stories. I was lettering myself, uh, they were black and white. So that I can save money on not having to do color, but also black and white suits crime. Um, and it was just an opportunity for me to tell the kind of stories that I wanted to tell, that I was interested in, and not worry um, about what a publisher wanted and what they were interested in. Yeah, I, I think the black and white actually works exceptionally well. Um, and there are some that, that have like, I don't know if they're gray tones necessarily, um, but just these really gorgeous looking tones that, that work um, with the black and white art. So looking at your, uh, like trying to get into like the publishing, to what extent does living in Canada have like as an impact to your ability to actually uh, break into these publishers? So I don't know, to be honest, because I think, you know, there was a sort of impression back in the day that you had to live in New York or wherever publishers were to be able to break in. Uh, I've never really seen being in Canada as, as a huge hindrance. Um, I do go to conventions, uh, which definitely helps. Early days, it definitely helps. Uh, on the flip side, I have some pretty intense anxiety. So I can't go to, you know, when I was starting out, especially, I couldn't go to a convention and talk to an editor. Uh, it just wasn't in my DNA. Even like, you know, I was lettering books for Oni back in the day. And uh, I would have pitches that I wanted to do or to have murder books or whatever. Uh, and I would be at a convention and I would walk by their booth and I couldn't talk to editors, even though these are editors that I worked <laughs> with that I'd lettered for. Um, my, my anxiety uh, was such that I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't walk up and just say, hey, you know, I'm at a letter for you. Here's some pitches I'm working on. Uh, that's something I had to really work hard to get over. Um, and I, know this I is can relate of, to that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. And I know this sort of sidelines from the, from the Canada thing, but you know, we do, like, I, I do think that if you can get out to conventions um, to sort of have FaceTime with other creators, it's great. But I think, you know, there are just as many creators who, who are able to sort of um, make connections by just posting stuff online about you know, self-publishing and such. Uh, it's just like doing conventions is just that extra thing that can help you, but I don't know that it's necessary. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question or not. Uh, I would say yeah, one, no, thing, 
The one thing that uh, is a benefit living here is I don't have to worry about healthcare with American uh, man, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> uh, which I know is definitely a concern for for some folks. Okay. You know, that's that's the one burden they don't have to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I, congratulations. I think, yeah, I, I think I think that Canada connection is actually super important um, to Murder Book because one of the things that um, I happen to notice, just you know, going through all these stories and looking at the artists who are working with you, is that pretty much most, if not all of them, are you know from from Canada or from um, that area. Uh, oh, we've got a bit of a dog issue. Yes, <laughs> we will be. Sorry, oh. sorry oh, no. about that. Just have to let them out. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, I guess just kind of trying to tie everything together. Um, I noticed that that a lot of the you know artists that were in here were from the Canada area, or you know were were living uh, around Toronto or something like that. Um, and I, I also happened to notice that a, a number of them, um, some of like you know Damien Cachero and Michael Walsh and Johnny Christmas and some of the other people that are in this collection are people that would go on to be your future collaborators. Um, so I was wondering, given that this was kind of a, an interesting foray into self-publishing for you, um, how are you connecting with these artists at that time, you know, kind of pitching them on Murder Book and uh, establishing relationships that, you know, would later uh, develop into other books? So uh, I'll start with Damien, then I'll sort of move forward. But Damien is a guy that I have been working with uh, in one capacity or another since about 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's the first artist that I teamed up with to try and pitch comics. Uh, you know, we pitched um, a book to Image back in the day that you know uh, they didn't take, but we got a lot of really positive feedback on. It was really sort of um, like a positive rejection. I know that sounds like, like an oxymoron, but it was it was a really good experience. It was a learning experience. Uh, so Damien and I had worked on a couple other pitches that didn't manage to go anywhere. The, the story in that book, uh, The Orchard, is a book that we, a story that we actually did before I started doing murder book uh, for a crime anthology that I put out with uh, three other uh, creators called Acts of Violence. And so we had done that and, and it was great. Uh, but Damien is like, Anytime I have a new project, uh, it'll come up and, and if we're both free, um, we hop on you know, doing something together. So, you know, we worked on some anarchy together. We worked on cluster together over at Boom. We did some uh, Iron Fist over at Marvel, mm -hmm. Old Man Logan at Marvel together. Uh, now Beyond the Breach over at Aftershock. Um, and we're working on something else right now as well. Um, so, that's how I, I, I met him. Uh, Simon Roy uh, is a dude I knew from Vancouver. Like, uh, I lived in Vancouver for about 20 years. Um, and I used to organize a thing there called the Vancouver Comic Jam, which uh, is still going right now. Now I think it's 18 years it's been going, which right is like a, a monthly thing where comic book creators, artists sort of get together, lots of beer involved, some sort of pub. And we draw like you know it's a thing where someone draws a panel, passes on the next episode, the yeah. panel, and, and, and that's sort of the 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 side you know that's the reason we get together, but really it's just a, a way to get together and sort of build a community. Mm -hmm. um, but I had known Simon uh, 
Christ. I've known Simon since about 2006 or seven. He was the guy who first came on to do like a fish and vertebrate story. Um, and then Johnny Christmas and I, I we had like I had a studio above a comic shop in Vancouver where there were other sort of comic creators and really cheap studio space. I think I split it with um, two other people and we each paid like 200 bucks a month. Um, and Johnny was a guy who had a space down the hall uh, from me. And I started doing murder book and I ran into him and we just talked in the hall. And then he mentioned he was like a comic book artist and, and was trying to break into comics. And he showed me a bunch of his work that was great. And so I just, you know, I was just like, hey, I got these short murder book things I'm working on. Was able to sort of rope him in that way. Uh, Michael Walsh was a guy who hired me to letter a comic book for him back in 2009, I believe, 2009 or 10. And I really liked his art style. So when I was done, I asked him, like, uh, you know, instead of him paying me uh, my fee on the book, would he be into drawing us a short uh, murder book story? And uh, like it, it's funny because every one of these dudes, when I approached them to draw, they were always like very skeptical because I think artists always get like a, book, <laughs> a million writers. And uh, but thankfully, I was able to win them over with the script. And so Michael Walsh and I started you know, working on the. Uh, we did that short murder book story together, and then we thought we worked so well together that we started pitching books, which mm -hmm. ended up being our first book was Comeback at, uh, mm -hmm. at uh, Image. Uh, same with Johnny and I, we worked together really well. I mean, obviously, we're local to each other, which is great, and that's why we started working together afterwards. I think we did two murder book stories, and then we worked together to do uh, uh, Shelter afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, who else is now? Declan Shelby was a guy who actually contacted me before he sort of broke big. Um, mm -hmm. Back in 2010, he read Murder Book and liked it and wanted to work on a story together. And it took me about a month and a half to write the script. And in that time, he got hired by a publisher, I think at Marvel. And then he was just off the board for the longest time. And then later on, I was able to get him back for one. Brian Level, you know, was a guy that I just met at cons. I thought he was great. And he just, you know, he was like the first non-Canadian I worked with. Um, but yeah, he was just a guy that we talked for a long time and brought him aboard to do one. And then Jason Copeland, who did, who's probably done more murder book stories than most of the other creators in there, than all the mm -hmm. other creators. He was just a local guy. Again, I, you know, I, I just met him locally and we would just hang out and have beers and I would just pitch a murder book ideas while we were drinking and just kind of went from there. So, yeah, so are you saying that in order to become a successful comic creator, I just need to start drinking a lot of beer? <laughs> with, That's what with, I'm picking up here. With other creators. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, with other, I just was lucky to be in the right place, right time, you know, uh, uh, you know, to meet all these guys. And then Vic Mahaltra who's also in that book as well. It's a guy from Edmonton who I just met through conventions. And I think he actually had drawn a book that I had lettered for another writer. And I like this guy. So we just sort of hit it off. But yeah, I think it's just, you know, I, I had to get over, you know, my own nerves and just start sort of, you know, hitting up artists to see if they were, were able to work on things. But like I was, like I said before, I was lucky enough to be in a pretty vibrant comic community where there were folks around that I could uh, that I was friends with already that I could kind of hit up 
Um, it definitely made life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of making things easier, um, that was a crappy transition. Um, but uh, I, I just, there, there's one thing that I noticed just going through a lot of, you know, some of your early creator own books, something that I don't think I've really ever seen from any other creator. Um, it's something you've mentioned a couple of times, um, which is that you were lettering a lot of your own books as well as other books, um, which feels like it should be a huge task, just writing the scripts and then actually having to go through the art and you know doing lettering passes and making sure that everything flows evenly. Um, how did you actually end up you know, lettering comic books as, as kind of a, a profession? Um, how did you sort of end up with that as, a, as, as an option and, and not kind of going through a, a second party? Uh, it was uh, a, weird, a weird path. Uh, so I originally, when I went to school back in the 90s, like post-secondary, I wanted to be an artist. Like I, for a long time, I just wanted to be a public artist. And so I went to fine arts in university and I lasted a couple of years before dropping out. And I just sort of like floated through life for a few years. And then um, when I was in Vancouver, I went into a program at a college. Uh, it was a print techniques and technologies, it was called. It was like an intensive two-year program where you were sort of at the school uh, in the same lab, like eight hours a day. And I had this sort of ridiculous in hindsight idea that uh, I could go through this program and get a job with a printer. And then I could create my comics and sort of come in after hours or something like that and print my comics off uh, for free or whatever. I, I don't know. What Nobody would notice. Head. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I went through the, the publishing techniques and technology program, which sort of covered everything um, uh, in print. Like, so it was, it was a lot of pre-press training that I got. It was a lot of design training that I got, a lot of uh, copywriting training, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like the whole idea was just supposed to come out of it, like fairly well-rounded in, in terms of like getting a job for a magazine or, or what, what have you. Um, and through that, you know, we learned Photoshop and then Illustrator, learned in, uh, not InDesign, it was Quark Express, we were on back then, since InDesign. Um, and I took a job, I was looking for just freelance work, and a friend of mine was working for a manga publisher that needed uh, letterers. I had never read any manga, uh, except for maybe Akira before this. And he set me up with a test uh, that the publisher will get you to do a lettering test. I did this lettering test. I screwed it up royally because I like I'd never read manga, so I didn't know what an aside was. I didn't know like a lot of terminology that they were using. Uh, somehow, I still got the job, uh, and <laughs> so I just kind of fell into lettering manga uh, for. I guess I started in two thousand six, and I didn't stop. Uh, lettering until 2017. Like I was writing at Marvel and still lettering manga at the same time. Uh, so 2017, and then I briefly came out of retirement in 2019 to letter an issue of Alpha Flight uh, at Marvel. But um, so yeah, I just kind of fell into it. It was never anything I thought uh, that I aspired to do, that I thought I was going to do. It was just a thing where. Uh, that this job opportunity came up and I knew I had the skills to do it. I knew I had the pre-press ability to do it because lettering now tends to involve a lot of pre-press work. 
And yeah, so I just kind of fell into it. And it was great because then I could save more money when doing pitches and stuff because I could letter stuff myself. And the lettering for me when I was writing and doing murder book became part of the writing process for me. I did a lot of fine-tuning dialogue. And I would strip away dialogue a lot when I thought we were getting enough information through the art. Um, and I, I would just tweak things as much as, uh, you know, I would sometimes do four or five versions uh, or passes on lettering, just tweaking and rearranging things and mm -hmm. just getting that like rhythm down right. And um, so, yeah, and you know, that's, that's how I got into lettering. Yeah, no, I just, I just think it's, it's such an interesting, um, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I think it's just such an interesting thing, I guess, to kind of see someone who is, is both developing the stories with an artist, but also having an active process and seeing how the lettering is done and not just kind of, you know, relying on, on a second party. It's just, it's a really interesting um, sort of creative process. And I, I was just wondering how that all came together. Um, but yeah, I, uh, think, I honestly oh, think sorry. that every writer should letter at some point, just so they can get a sense of like what, uh, what works within the panel. I think both uh, writers and artists might benefit um, just from, from going through the process and learning the process, just so they, they can understand a bit better um, and what we need and stuff. You know, I, back in the day, I remember lettering a book that a screenplay writer had written, a guy mm -hmm. who had a bunch of film credits. And uh, so the general rule is like, you can have like 35 words mm -hmm. per panel. It's sort of a general, you know, it's, it's not ironclad, but uh, you know, I'm just giving that for context for the next bit where, you know, I was lettering a panel that this guy had and he had 376 words, something along that in one panel Man. Oh. On, on a seven panel page. And uh, I emailed my editor. I was like, you can't, you can't do this. It's just not, it's not physically possible. <laughs> and I'm like, you need to get this guy to cut it. And uh, mm. So they sent it away to the screenplay writer and he sent it back and he cut 20 words. Oh um, my God. <laughs> so I, I, I lettered it. I lettered it as, as he did it just so I could show them. And like the, the, you know, the, the balloon with the 350 some odd words took like half, half the page, like half the page of art was just gone. And like the, the balloon was so huge. Um, that's an extreme example, but I think that some newer writers and, and some newer artists um, can just like, from lettering a couple pages, you know, or lettering an issue or whatever, can actually just get a sense of, of what works and what doesn't. I think that's a great idea. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we, we kind of talked a little earlier about connecting with artists and, you know, um, how you might kind of get to know them more and, and working with them in that whole process. Um, and I, I guess I kind of want to take a, a brief second to just... Um, get into some of your early works at, at, uh, at Image. Um, we're not gonna go into great detail, um, but I, I just, I feel like some of the, the books that you had mentioned, you know, Comeback, um, Sheltered, or, you know, The Fields from, uh, from Simon Roy. I have all my copies here, just for reference. I can, I can look at them and marvel at them. Um, but I feel like a lot of those are, are really, you know, concept driven. They kind of feel like they, they have a, a very clear concept that they going on from the start and then the characters are sort of developed throughout that. Um, and so I guess my question was, are you sort of developing these story concepts, these ideas with a specific artist in mind, or are you thinking more along the lines of, 
I'm just going to kind of develop this in the back of my head and then see which artists might work best for it. Because um, I feel like a lot of these books pair really well with um, their yeah. art. I'm wondering how much collaboration was between you and the artist in developing uh, these books. Uh, with those ones, we jumped in knowing like it was going to be a Johnny and I book or, or mm -hmm. a Walsh and I book or Simon Roy and I. Uh, Comeback, which was my first, um, Walsh and I had this plan uh, which, like, to say it in retrospect sounds like a ridiculous plan, but I don't know that it was. Um, and our plan was we just really wanted to have an image. We really wanted to get in with image. And so Walsh and I had this plan that we would uh, come up with concepts. So we'd chat, you know, he lives, um, I was living in Vancouver, he lives like, uh, just outside of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So we're, like, we're not close at all. We're, I don't know what that is, 3,000 miles apart, right? right? Mm -hmm. So we would just chat you know, um, online all the time. And just sort of, I would have some ideas that throw around and discuss them. And what we would do is I would write the pitch. I would write five pages um, and I would hand them off, off to Walsh. And then he would go off and he would draw the cover and the five pages. Mm -hmm. And while he was doing that, I was working on the next pitch, another pitch. And while he was drawing, I would write the pitch uh, I would write, you know, the script for five pages. Mm -hmm. uh, and our plan was to pump out um, at least one pitch every two months um, and just hit image as hard as we could nonstop. Like just do one yeah, pitch, send it to them. You know, while we were waiting to hear back from them, we'd be on the next pitch. And so Comeback was actually our second pitch. Uh, so we got some positive feedback on the first pitch. Uh, it, but it didn't end up happening. But then our second pitch kind of picked up. But we had like, you know, we we're ready to send off like seven or eight of these things and just kind of keep going. Uh, so he and I were like working very closely together. Um, Sheltered, which was the book after that, uh, Johnny and I, like I said, we had studio space just down the hall from each other. And one night we just showed up to the studio with two six packs each brought a bunch of ideas and we just sat down and sort of talked about different ideas uh, that we had and what might be interesting to develop into a, a pitch uh, or a story that we could work on together. And interestingly, Sheltered was very early concept stage, very different than what it was. It was a story oh, wow. about That's interesting. Uh, the uh, Black Eyed Kids, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with that sort of paranormal phenomena yeah. of... Uh, and it ended up just not being that at all. It was just like, it was just a story about killer kids, I guess, kind of from the beginning. Uh, but like during our initial conversation, we had these pitches and I like this Black Eyed Kids sort of thing. But at the same time, I had been working on a, uh, I, I, you know, I love crime stuff. I love horror stuff and I love post-apocalyptic stuff. Uh, and I was sort of coming up with a post-apocalyptic idea, but I didn't have it yet. And one of the things that I was doing was I was researching doomsday preppers because I wanted to like get this sort of realistic view on what a post-apocalyptic society would look like according to these people who are actually preparing for this post-apocalyptic society. And through my research, I, I just came across a lot of parents who sort of moved off the grid and were training their kids to um, live in this world, this harsh world that was coming. And it, it just got me obsessed with the what would happen to these kids growing up in that society, which then became sheltered. So I think we originally decided to do a Black Eyed Kids book, 
that ended up becoming a post, you know, pre-apocalyptic prepper community uh, book. So it was completely different. But you know, we worked <laughs> on it together, and there were sometimes when we were in the same room working on that. Uh, but, uh, and then with the field, it's the same thing. I had the field is a weird one in that it started out as a weird Twitter prank. Like if you have the trade paperback, I think it's in the back there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that. <laughs> um, and yeah, it started out as this Twitter prank where somebody, I got it, like by the end of this podcast, it's going to sound like I'm an alcoholic and I swear that I'm not. <laughs> but I got it <laughs> drinking with a bunch of comic friends one night. And I was pretty, I, I know I was pretty blotto uh, at the end of the night. Uh, and I vaguely remember just falling onto the road at some point. Um, and then a friend of mine thought it would be funny to post next morning that uh, I ran off while we were out of the bar drinking and no one's seen me since, which <laughs> would actually not be the first time that that actually happened. Um, but a comic oh, music no. picked it up and ran it as a story that I was, uh, I was missing. Oh, no, no. And, <laughs> and so I I hopped on Twitter when I saw this on Twitter. Like I'd woken up at like two in the afternoon or something like that because I was pretty out of it. Uh, I saw those. So I just pretended to roll with it that I'd woken up in a wheat field in the middle of Saskatchewan, <laughs> which is about, you know, uh, 1,500 miles away from where I live. And awesome. <laughs> just didn't break break at all i just kept writing as though i just woken up there naked and had gotten kidnapped by this dude and uh all this like, real shady stuff that was happening around me and to me um and then i had to stop it later that same day because my parents were calling my wife oh no <laughs> they stumbled across it and thought that i was in trouble uh and so i stopped it and ended up realizing it would make a fun comic and simon and i had been talking about it so it developed what it ended up becoming, which is a little bit different than the original Twitter thread. We, yeah, we developed it together. You know, um, we were living in the same city, so we just meet for coffee or beer and discuss what we're working on and, and just go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so those early ones, I, I, it was a lot easier to sort of do that back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even like, you know, I did the mantle over at Image for Prime Level, which is kind of the same thing. You know, I just talked every day. And I, I try to, when I'm doing a creator-owned thing, uh, involve an artist right away. These days, that sometimes I have just, like, concepts that I want to do. And I don't necessarily have a, an artist nailed down. But I don't actually start writing until I do have an artist. So I'll have the concept. I'll have the, the, the sort of pitch, the, the very rough outline. Um, but until I have an artist... Uh, that I, I teamed up with, I don't write anything because I just want it to be as collaborative as possible. And the few awesome. times that I have just written pages and then gone out trying to find an artist afterward, it's never, it, ne- it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. You know, um, there's a couple where I've just pulled the pin on it pretty early because it just didn't, it didn't feel like it was going to work. Uh, you know, a couple times it's sort of, gone through and the book has come out and just never felt uh, as good as it would have if I had been doing a much more collaborative process from the beginning. Yeah, well, I guess that's a, that's a great way to, to segue once again um, into my last question before I pass it over uh, to Nathan. 
Um, so obviously you have a new book coming out from Aftershock um, with uh, Gavin Goodry. I, I believe it's how his name is pronounced. Uh, There's something wrong with Patrick Todd. Um, and it's, it's great to hear you talk about how you, you know, develop some of these books with creators, either sometimes having them in mind, or sometimes not having them in mind. Um, and so I was wondering what's kind of your, what's been your development process with Gavin shaping this book and, and what you're hoping it will be, um, you know, when it comes out in, uh, in July. So it's Gavin Guidry. But yeah, he, uh, he's the guy I met at Heroes Con in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were sitting just a few tables down from each other and I always really liked his artwork. Um, so this was, weirdly, this was a concept that I was kicking around for about a year or so. Mm-hmm. And um, was trying to find the right artist for it because it's got a really weird tone to it. Um, and there was at one point I was had been talking to a different artist very early on, but this is one of the scenarios where it just wasn't like the artist was good, but it just didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and so you know we parted ways, and you know, like no hard feelings or anything like that. Um, and uh, I sort of put it away for a bit and then Gavin had posted something I can't recall what it was and I was like oh shit yeah he would be perfect and so you know thankfully reached out and then yeah right from the beginning I was just like here's sort of the concept for it here's where I see it going um here's you know you know and I, I shot it over to him for some of his input and, and then he started designing the characters and stuff like that and um, yeah it was just you know we hit it off right off the bat but like again i i'd met him in 2017 and, and so you know i'd uh, i'd talked to him a bunch of times so at the convention and, and, and you know so yeah and then he brought you know his own energy to it and sort of his takes on the characters and you know had some uh, input on um, some of the story points mm-hmm. and uh yeah and it just felt it just felt much more organic and, and it worked and uh, like I said, it's a it's a weird book, um, and so uh, there's some like real dark shit in the book. And having oh, yeah. that sort of like <laughs> Gavin has this really cool like sort of clean line style that is like um, that uh, works as this like beautiful like uh, counterpoint to it almost. It's a, it's a nice sort of a it's a nice pairing. Yes, um, but yeah, no, he's he's been super pleasant to work with. And, uh, Again, like we chat all the time. I feel like that's got to be my thing. If I, uh, I hate working with artists where I think you know, we can talk a little bit and then they get scripted and I just don't hear from them until pages come out. Like they, yeah, it's got to be much more of a, a more collaborative and more, you know, um, just like I, I want to make sure that everyone's sort of involved while we're working on the project. I know that it's a thing that the two of us you know, could only do, like, it couldn't be a thing I could have done with someone else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like, yeah. yeah, and I, I think, I think, just as a final point, having Chris O'Halloran, who's the colorist, is, is just such a phenomenal choice. Um, Chris is, for those who are unaware, also doing another book called The Righteous Thirst for Vengeance at Image Comics with uh, Rick Remender and Andre Arao Lima. Absolutely gorgeous stuff. I think he just brings such a great energy to crime fiction. Um, uh, but he's a, he's great. I'm trying to get him on more stuff. We'll see we'll see how that pans out. But so he's been great to work with as well. And then our letterer as well. Now that I don't letter anymore, mm-hmm. 
Hassan on Twitter. Oh, yeah. It's just, he's so great. He's like, he tries just like so much crazy stuff all the time with the lettering. Uh, and yeah, I really, just really appreciate like, the, the thought that he brings into everything he's doing. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, all right, Before well, we move away from the uh, indie work that you've put out, I wanted to bring up the violent and beyond the breach since you mentioned dark and weird. Um, <laughs> those are both awesome. The violent, you had me rooting for and against the same person. Now sure. that's damn good writing. Uh, beyond the breach with a wizard space guy and a giant <laughs> tortoise named Turtle. Oh. I mean, I chuckled and got pulled into that story. So awesome. And then the silver coin, which as of late has become my favorite horror book. Um, you wrote number three. Such a great issue. It, it really is. Um, it's really good. Without spoiling anything, I love what Lisa goes through throughout the whole book and especially at the end. It's a hell of a one shot. I had one question for you, though. Where did the inspiration for that story come from? Because it was really gripping for me. I don't know. Actually, I was in a good position in that I had already read um, Kelly and Chip stories. Um, and I'd read Walsh's, but he, he you know, his um, issue five. And I, I, I knew everything that he was doing. And Walsh and I talk, like, still, you know, uh, we talk usually once a day. You know, so we're in touch quite often. And uh, so I knew everything that was going on. And what I wanted to do was like, uh, after reading Chips and reading Kelly's, I wanted to like sort of bridge that gap between their issues and show how they came up from the, the place in Chips to the place in, in, in Kelly's essentially and have that sort of connected tissue. The crime thing, I don't know, man. It was just another one of those things where just like murder book, where I didn't know where it was going to go. I had my start point and my end point and I just kind of sat down. Uh, it, that, I think that silver coin issue is the first thing I wrote after writing you know, Catch and Release. Um, so it's still in that mindset. And, uh, yeah, I just well, it definitely works. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and if, if, we, if we have some extra time, I would absolutely love to circle back to the violence because that was, I read that last December and it was probably... I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, honestly, but it was probably one of my favorite, um, you know, independent books trades that I had read in a while. It was just such a, an incredibly personal and and really gut wrenching story. Um, really, and really. Just, Sorry yeah, that um, it uh, dropped a little. I believe it got it wasn't selling enough issues and it ended earlier than it was supposed to. If yeah, I'm not it was, mistaken. It was a weird thing where the single issues uh, were doing just okay, not great. But the trade did really well. So we're in this weird place. Adam and I are constantly talking about uh, going back to it. Um, so the second volume is, is you know, not quite half written, but you know, roughly better. Oh, and the first awesome. issue first issue is drawn. Like Adam's drawn the first issue of the second volume uh, just within the last year or so. Uh, funny enough, I was talking to Adam about an hour ago and we're just we're just trying to figure out how to get it out. And we have, um, there's one potential um, path on, on our place right now where we might be able to get it out within the next year. Uh, but I don't want to promise anything because, you know, at one point we talked about doing Kickstarter board and I've had a few sort of like um, 
a few moments where I thought definitely it was happening and, and then you know, things just went sideways and it didn't happen for one reason or another, uh, another casualty of the pandemic actually. Um, but uh, yeah, we're working on it. We really want to get done. I actually have like five trades planned out for that series. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, and they're all sort of just loosely connected. You know, the next one, the second volume is actually set in 1986. Uh, oh, wow. Nice. The cop from the first volume as a, as a kid. Um, and and it feels like he and his friend run away. And, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't go great. And it, it weirdly, loosely based on the time that I ran away when I was younger. Uh, <laughs> but not ended up in the field? <laughs> no, no not, not that time. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but we're working on it, you know, and my hope is that by the time we get to the fifth volume, it circles back around and it's about um, uh, Caitlin, the daughter from the first volume. It's mm-hmm. about her as sort of a teenager uh, on the streets of Vancouver, sort of like maybe not necessarily a pleasant uh, wrap up, but sort of you know the whole thing is about sort of cycl- cyclical behaviors and and, and uh, uh, trends, and so you know the ending will not be any different. Uh, oh, I yeah. I'm not spoiling anything by saying no, that. Yeah. Who, who knows if we ever get to volume five? Um, I hope so, because I would I would absolutely love to see you know Kaylin and in, in the future kind of reconciling with with uh, her father Mason's past and. Yeah, um, I would love to see kind of just more of Becky's story and more of that world. It was just it was such an engaging and gripping personal story. Um, but we we have been rapping for you know quite some time, and and I've just been loving it. Um, but I'm going to hand it over to Nathan. He's been chomping at the bit to talk okay. some Deathstroke Inc. So all Nathan, right, take all it right. away, buddy. So yeah, so we're primarily a DC podcast, and so I wanted to ask some questions sort of about the last sort of like your work with Infinite Frontier as a whole. And then getting into some of what you're doing with Deathstroke Inc. and your Batman annual coming up. So the first thing I wanted to know was you've worked in the X office with New Mutants, which I really enjoyed. You know, uh, um, and um, you've also worked in the Bat Family. And the Bat Family, especially during Infinite Frontier, took a lot of inspiration from the work of the X office in terms of connectivity, working together, the, the weeks and monthly calls, that sort of stuff. So having worked in both sort of groups, what what it what are the differences between their approaches to shared comics? So I will say, like I didn't do a ton at DC uh, over the last, like I just in the last year just did the Clown Hunter right and uh, story and the, the Peacekeeper thing, but mostly those were like kind of I was approached to write them uh, more or less. You know, I wasn't involved in any of those big meetings or anything like that, so it was more or less sort of just working uh, on my own the um, peacekeeper issue though um, James had provided a really intent four-page documents on like <laughs> sort of uh, that that, like, like him. it was it was pretty it like put my my uh, my outlines to shame in such a like dramatic way and that like his wasn't even just like just a story but it was like the entire history of this family um, uh, you know, in Gotham and, and, and who they were within the city and, you know, and uh, what the last 20 years of their life have been like, et cetera, et cetera. It turned out when I talked to him later on that at, at one point he'd been hoping to do a Peacekeeper miniseries and this is sort of like, mm-hmm. the, the Bible for that. Um, 
but it was great. It, it gave me a lot of information like, to, to pull from and play around with. And I got, you know, in Peacekeeper especially, uh, it felt like I got to sort of just really, uh, it's funny because, you know, I co-wrote with James, uh, you know, essentially, uh, but it was the first time where I felt like I got to do the kind of thing that I really liked doing, which is like almost kind of a straight up crime story. Um, I got to do some like weird, some sort of like a Batman year one style, like flashbacks and such. And there, there's even one part where I sort of tied it in a little bit to Batman year one. Um, but yeah, it, but more or less, you know, I was working with the editors and so I wasn't part of the, the larger conversation, okay. the rest of the editorial uh, office. Um, so adding on to that, um, there's obviously some quote unquote retconny moments in Peacekeeper. Uh, for example, uh, Sean Cassidy trying to uh, get bringing in the like the explosive to yes. uh, destroy some of the evidence, right? Um, I was that in part of the Bible um, that uh, James Neal sent you. Was that an idea you came up with? That I believe was part of the sort of part of the mandate when we went in, but there was that part was already there. I think when I came in, where I'm trying to remember exactly what it is. I know you're talking about the scene with the nurses and, and the yeah, yeah. But he brings in the tanks and, and he rescues them. So yeah, that was a thing where like I think they needed to make sure he had like his hero moment, right? So it's not just right. straight up going. And that's why that was there. But that was there when I came in. So that was great. Yeah, I really love the peacekeeper issue because I think it's such a nuanced, like he's such a nuanced character and he did a really good job bringing that out. And I was curious, like talking about that, like how do you, when you're writing this character, how do you try to avoid sort of like having, like how do you balance between like he's really, he really admires cops and like the police force system, but also trying to avoid being like quote unquote copaganda, like emphasizing like copaganda or being too overly like praiseworthy of cops, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's tough. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it's maybe, not so popular to say this right now, but like my dad was a cop. So I grew up yeah. around cops. Um, and so I was just trying to sort of channel a bit of that into this, into that story. Yeah, it really comes across, um, yeah. And I wasn't like, you know, it's, uh, they're bad dudes. <laughs> the dudes in the story, especially are, are bad yeah. dudes. But I think, you know, you can, uh, it's, a, it's such a tightrope, like with, with uh, like, especially his father and, and, the, and mm -hmm. the way that he is, this sort of old school, uh, really toxic uh, person. But, like, you know, I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's tough because, you know, dude is definitely pro cop. You know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. is pro cop. And so you just kind of have to lean into it a bit with him while just showing, like, you know, this is some pretty shitty stuff that they're doing. This is not cool stuff. It's really, you know, especially a lot of the stuff that his dad does is really uh, damaging. It's really not, not yes. so. so awesome I mean, origin yeah. stories for both Clown Hunter and and Peacekeeper. Yes, definitely. definitely. Mm -hmm. So I was going to talk about Clown Hunter next. Um, sure. I mean, what do you find compelling about like Bao as a character, his personality? Etc. And what do you? I was really taken by his like sort of little guy nature, but he's also like very angsty. And I was just curious, like, what are the things you really like about him? You know, I just kind of like that he's really chaotic. To be honest, like, right. I, I wish I could go like had like some more like deeper 
sort of um, answer for you, but he's just he's just kind of chaos. Like he's like, uh, you know, he's he's got that sort of teenage uh, thing. And this like this is something that we're dealing with in, in there's something wrong with Patrick Todd as well. Is that you know um, children learn empathy like at a fairly young age, but for some reason teenagers kind of forget it. And have to <laughs> like it's a legitimate thing, yeah. you know, like um, where they just kind of forget to care about anyone else and have to relearn it. And I think that there's an interesting thing with with um, Clown Hunter in that, like, I, you know, really, it's hard to argue when he's out there killing people, and you know, like Batman's let Joker go a thousand times, you know, or put him in prison a thousand times, right. and, you know, ten thousand more people. Have, died as a result it's hard to sort of argue about logic there but you know yep. i think he just doesn't have a ton of empathy for sort of anyone outside of his own uh his own purview and his own sort of point of view and he like again he's just sort of chaotic the stuff that he does he just jumps in sort of uh feet first without really sort of thinking things through and I think there's a lot of fun in putting people in those sort of situations where um, they've sort of fought themselves into a corner and have to figure out how to get out of it. Um, I like, you know, writing people who make bad decisions and have, uh, have to have yeah. them cope with it and sort of learn from it a bit, which is, you know, something going forward we'll be doing a lot with kind of uh, you know, in the yeah. Batman moment. Right. Almost so, sounds like he's somewhat of an anti-joker <laughs> yeah so so far ghostmaker has been primarily uh viewed through his relationship to batman and his views on crime um but in the upcoming batman in 2022 annuals he talked about the ghostmaker is being paired with uh, someone who doesn't really have a pre-existing relationship uh with uh ghostmaker which is of course um Hunter. so how do you as a writer figure out the dynamic between the two characters especially given that there's both not really much of a history and also that they're both very new in terms of like their like creation to the mythos as a whole. So there is some stuff that we're going to be getting into with Ghostmaker that I'm not going to spoil here, uh, but going forward that I think is going to be really interesting. And Dang it. it's going to like really color the relationship between Tom Hunter and, and Ghostmaker. Uh, but what I'll say like right now, I think... Uh, the thing that's interesting between the two of them is they're kind of paired up by Batman, right? And they're not, neither is like super interested in working with the other. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know I've been swearing on this and I hope, I hope it's fine. No, no you're fine. <laughs> Ghost, Ghostmaker's an asshole, right? Like he's, yeah, he's just right. like, just a raging asshole. But like, so is Clown Hunter. And like, you put these two guys <laughs> in, a, in a room together uh, who have like, it's weird because they they hate each other, but they're they're also so much alike, right? Like they're yeah. very similar personalities. So they're trying to we're trying to do a thing, you know. We're trying to sort of really delve into that, and, and there's again, there's some stuff with with Ghostmaker that will be coming out that uh, will sort of really. Um, will that be in uh, the uh, oh god uh, Shadow War uh, there's a bit in Warzone where Ghostmaker does like the shittiest version of training uh, uh, 
Mod Hunter, like very much they like throw him out of a boat and hope he swims. Oh, we entertain for sure. So yeah, and and that's where we sort of like get into it a little bit, and then and then more so in the Batman annual. But like I just they're they're very like divisive. Uh, they both right. have very divisive personalities. Uh, they're both like really super stubborn and trying to find that sort of common ground where they're going to finally sort of come together and, and understand one another in the way that they can, the best way yeah. that they can. Because any, you know, um, Ghostmaker's a psychopath, so any relationship you want to have is, you know, the only one that suits them sort of at the moment and, and not always <laughs> right. be a very deep uh, or lasting relationship. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, another fun thing to play around with. Um, oh, I'm super excited. Um, so in the same way you've sort of been taking over, sort of telling some of James Pinion's new characters, um, you're also doing a lot with Joshua Williamson's work, including Batman Inc., The Death Drift, and lots of corporations. <laughs> yes. um, but anyways, <laughs> what is your relationship with uh, Joshua Williams, and how does the collaborative process look like for him? So he and I, uh, we have an interesting relationship in that, uh, so back in the day when we really sheltered Three Image, uh, he released the book Three Image his same week. And uh, I was blanking, was it Ghostmaker, I think it was called? Or no, Ghosted, Ghosted, yeah. Ghosted, Ghosted yeah, with, thank you. Um, Garan Suzuka. Yes, so I, I'm thinking Ghostmaker. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, so we released our books the same week and like almost exactly the same sales. So we had like this weird, like friendly competition with each other. And I think I literally just <laughs> oh. met him through us congratulating each other through Twitter. And then we met him and talked and stuff. Uh, I, I like, he's a really nice dude. You know, every time I'm at a convention, we'll, we usually, you know, run into each other on the show floor and talk for a little bit. Um, and he was, I believe the one who put me forward for, for taking over Deathstroke after he left. So, you know, we just, uh, in terms of what the, what the annual looks like and what this book looks like, uh, it was really just us having a phone call with our editor, Ben Abernathy, and just sort of talking over some things and throwing some ideas back and forth. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, anything super complex, you know, we, uh, we all liked each other and all, you know, pretty respectful of each other's ideas and, and but have no problem jumping in and throwing in, um, you know, other ideas that we think might work better or, or, or different ways to take the story. So with Clown Hunter uh, and Death and Ghostmaker taking over Batman Inc., um, or at least helping lead that, um, can we expect the Clown Hunter redesign costume-wise, or will he still just make back and still be wearing the ripped up school uniform? Um, yeah, there is a redesign coming because Ghostmaker absolutely fucking hates that costume. Uh, yes. Oh no. And, <laughs> and, and, and oh. it does. It is a point of contention between the two of them. I love it. Um, and can we expect you to continue writing Clown Hunter in the future after Batman 2022 annual, or is this kind of where uh, your journey with the character ends? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I'll just kind of leave it there. Sounds good. Um, and moving on to Deathstroke, um, you're writing Deathstroke Year One, kicked off your sort of like Deathstroke run. And um, I was curious, there's been many different versions of the origins of Deathstroke. And so what are some Tell of the key it. points? <laughs> so what are some <laughs> of the key points or elements that define any Deathstroke origin to you? So I think like really the, the, the few things that I'll say like that we're focusing in on here, the, yeah. which are the more interesting to me is even though we don't show it a lot on the page, I think 
uh, that sort of, sort of relationship or slave Wilson's relationship with his father um, in the past and how that sort of influences his relationship with his own sons. Um, so in, in the in the year one, we don't have, uh, Rose is not going to be a part of it. Um, right. And, and right now it's actually just Grant. Let me say it but like just how that influences him as the father, uh, you know, I think the big thing is how the um, the experiments, the ACTH, ACTH. I always every time I, I reverse the C and the T, ACTH experiments. Uh, yeah. How they change him as a person. There's definitely a before and after. When we start this, we start like the series starts with him waking up from the experiment, so we don't have a lot of before. Uh, other than in, in sort of the, the, the conversations with the learning by So I think the, you know, the big things for me is that that sort of relationship with his, his own family, both you know, his father and, so, and, and his relationship with Abby and Grant and, and that, and then, you know, his circle of friends, you know, Wintergreen is in this uh, issue that shows up as well. Um, so I think for me, that was like the big thing, like just kind of showing what kind of, person he is through, through that lens and then who he becomes like this year one is essentially about him taking up his first contract as you know, who will become best slave. Right. and uh, so you know it, it's interesting in showing that you know, he's already well trained right like he's been right. in the military for years so he's well trained but not at necessarily this kind of work um and so there's a lot of like you know, trying like trying to explain how he becomes this person who has no problem going around killing people for money and, and, and what lengths he'll go to. But also because it's early days, he doesn't have it all quite figured out. So he, he screws up yeah. a lot, you know, which is I think to me the most interesting part. You know, he, he screws up and ends up in uh, in a pretty big fight where where he I'm not gonna spoil, but uh, you know. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of screw ups along the way, and <laughs> yeah. um, I think we're planting a lot of the seeds for things that that happen in the future in the series as well. So right on. we're going to see a lot of characters who play a major role uh, later in in Deathstroke's life or Slade's life, mm -hmm. sort of in those first encounters or you know where he maybe first meets them. So then I take it that you have plans for Deathstroke Inc. after Year One finishes. Uh, right now we're just focusing on year one, so I don't I don't okay. know beyond that. Um, so we'll see. You know, Deathstroke is a fun Deathstroke is a very yeah. fun character to write. So uh, once again, I, I end up writing all the all the jokes. Uh, <laughs> can, we yeah. can we expect year one to dive into the events of TNTT or the New Teen Titans, or is or is that sort of uh, too far in the future? Yeah. So. One? Yeah, it's too far. So the, the Teen Titans I was looking at doing, but really, so like the problem with the year one is trying to find like when it actually takes place. It's yes. kind of dicey yes. because there have been so many origins and that that move, that moved the sort of timeline all around. Mm -hmm. um, even like we had all the whole thing with like Caracalla and stuff at one point, we're trying to figure out because there's there's some stuff that shows him with older children wearing you know, blonde hair. That, like, really after yeah. the experiment he should have white hair um, whatever anyway so i've it's 
like dancing between raindrops a little bit, trying to find the right places uh, for everything to land. Um, and I tried to make it, I tried to make sure it was as authentic as possible. But like in the year one, Grant is like five, and his first encounter with Team Titans is with Grant is Ravager, right? Like back in the day. Yeah. So Grant is, you know, I, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, 18 at least, maybe in his early yeah. 20s. So this is sort of supposed to be much, much earlier than when he Got has it. his running with Team Titans. But there is some stuff from there. There is some still connected tissue. We're like planting okay. some seeds. Uh, so it's it's um, not like we're ignoring it. Um, um, there's some nods. Could you consider Deathstroke's true nemesis to be? Because there's often like a couple different options. I would just yeah. see where your head is at with this character. You know what? I don't like. I know that like some folks do like Batman or or, or some folks do some Titans or Nightwing. Uh, or Green Arrow or whatever. And I kind of like, this is a, like a total cop-out answer, but I yeah. don't know that he needs to have one. I think, mm -hmm. uh, I think especially with a guy who's just working for the highest bidder, it could just be anyone. Like, but like if we're talking flashes in the past, and it's definitely, you know, mm -hmm. it's definitely either gonna be like Team Titans, Batman, Green Arrow, or High, right? Like it's, you can pick yeah. any one of those four. Um, or the jackal, or whatever you know, we can keep going on. But I think I don't know. Like I know he started as a Teen Titans one, and that's where I think a lot of people want to place him. But I don't know that I necessarily buy it yet. Is so. I assume the answer is that it's intended to continue on. But is your one intended as a self-contained story, or is it also setting doing a lot of setup work for the future? It's primarily a self-contained story, so it's just okay. like. You know, no different than sort of like Batman Year One or Green Arrow or right. whatever. It's just getting that sort of like this is what it was like when you think about it. And then my last question is: Have you worked on Dark Crisis in any capacity? Is that something that you've thought about in terms of like with working with DC, or are you more like is this? Are you more distanced from that? I uh, no, I haven't done any Dark Crisis stuff. I'm going to say that and get off the call and realize it. Somehow I have. Um, <laughs> I, no, I don't. I don't believe yeah. so. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, so that's that's everything DC wise I have. Um, I really appreciate. Uh, I'm really excited to see your work. Um, I've really enjoyed Thanks. Clown Hunter and Peacekeeper so far, and I'm excited to see where um, the Ghostmaker goes. Um, and I, I do have a curious question about New Mutants, real quick, because um, one of the things I've always really I've really loved about comics that really got me back in or like really more into it was the Krakoa era really exciting me in X-Men because I'd never been, I'd never read X-Men intensively and then Krakoa really brought me in. And one of the things that always like really struck out to me was your work with New Mutants. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. It's like a younger teen story in that time period. And so I was curious, um, what was your initial pitch slash plan for New Mutants? Um, Man, it changed a lot over the course yeah. of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but originally, what I wanted to do, if I had stayed on longer, my my hope was initially just sort of like a, a passing of the baton to the younger team, uh, because I always just find it weird to have a team called New Mutants that's supposed mm -hmm. to be like the next. Like I saw, so like yeah, I read New Mutants when it originally came out, mm -hmm. and the whole thing they were supposed to be the like so the next class of X Men. And uh, 
I always thought that it's like a thing. It felt more like there should be a passing of the time and we should have a younger crew running around with the title. Obviously, the way that comics are, everyone uh, hates change in that way, you know, that everyone's yeah. on a nostalgic kick and want to maintain the same. So, like, ideally, I would have changed the two. So, like, you know, uh, Cannibal and Sunspot or, uh, mm -hmm. and, and Danny and all those characters might have been around as more of an advisory capacity, but mm -hmm. the, the younger team. I wanted, I really wanted to have armor leading a team. Uh, I love yeah. armor. Uh, I wanted Glob on the team, obviously, and then love with Glob. Uh, and so that was initially sort of the plan was to sort of move in that direction. Uh, but obviously, that's that's not the way it went. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, the pitch changed a few times from, from the time that I was working on it. I don't want to get too much into the stuff I didn't do. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that Vita is doing a good job uh, yeah. on the book. and. Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't want right. no, to throw out something that would contradict anything that they're doing. Um, was, I was uh, just curious, because one of the things I really remember was the uh, alternating issues with New Mutants early on, with Jonathan Hickman's work. Was that, um, as a writer, like, what were you, how did, how, how would you navigate that? Was that, like, something that made it trickier? Was yeah, that it was definitely trickier. It's sort of, uh, the way that it worked wasn't the way it was originally planned, so I, we had to change some things as we were moving along yeah. to, to right. make those alternating issues work. But, you know, it's, uh, I think I'm so happy with how they came out. So, If you could have continued past 12 issues, what were some things, some things you would have loved to do? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think yeah. I would have like, uh, you know, uh, Cosmar was a character that I brought in that I really wanted to play around with. Mm -hmm. uh, Maxim and Manon are the two. Uh, right. Uh, Ivory screen kids that I really would like to play around with a bit more and sort of really develop. Um, so though, you know, beyond that, you know, I can't really say without really. Yeah. So uh, Destiny of X is going on right now. Um, and this is my last question is what are sure. you reading? Keeping are you keeping up with Krakoa? And uh, no. what are you enjoying from Krakoa right now? I'm not <laughs> keeping up at all. Uh, so there's like uh, sometimes when you like leave a series. Uh, it's like kind of like a breakup, and yeah. <laughs> you just need you just need to not like you know look at the yeah, person's Facebook page for a while and just kind of move on. <laughs> and it's, it's definitely that sort of feeling. So, uh, like I think because you know when you leave a series, a lot of times, especially when you have like things that you wanted to do, it's hard to yeah. sort of look at it. So yeah, I I haven't really read anything since uh, sort of that. Um, and I know it's stuff I'll go back and revisit uh, later on. Um, but I tend to, a lot of the reading I do these days is also like research reading. So I don't, yeah. it sucks, but I don't have as much sort of casual reading time uh, as I would like. Um, and sometimes when I do have it, I try and read things uh, other other than comics, just because I, you know, I don't want to just be uh, taking in only comic media and, 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 you know, read books like you know just to, to help inspire and, and give me other uh, ideas and just other information for when i'm writing down the road awesome well ed how are you on time because i don't want to hold you any longer no, go ahead um well we just had i think maybe about two more questions um because obviously sure. you have another new series coming up predator over at marvel yeah. and that one's 
sort of been behind the scenes for about a year or so, thanks to pandemic and paper shortages and everything else that's just messed up in the world right now. Um, so I'm going to pass that one over to Josh. He knows a little bit more about Predator than I do, sure. um, but uh, he gets a couple <laughs> of questions that he'd like to ask. Yeah, this one I'm super excited for. I was way, way too young to be able to watch the first movie when it came out in VHS. I still did, and I rented it so many times. I should have had a reserved copy for me. Uh, yeah, So I'm super excited for this book to come out. Uh, standing on its own, Kev Walker's work is just flat-out impressive. Oh, yeah. And from what I understand, which has me very excited as well, is that you're a huge Predator fan yourself. Yes, uh, I actually I got to see Predator for the first time at a drive-in theater when I was a kid. Oh, uh, you're lucky! <laughs> and just had been obsessed ever since. I I taped it off of uh, Super Channel, which was like uh, the Canadian HBO back in the day. Right. Uh, and yeah, I had a copy of it that I watched sort of repeatedly. Uh, but yeah, definitely love that film. I even really loved uh, the second one when it came out. Me too, uh, <laughs> guiltily. And uh, it's still like it's fun. I think it does a lot of uh, has a lot of cool big ideas with it. Um, I think I don't know that it holds up as well over time. Um, but yeah, no, I'm a, a big fan of the film, so I was pretty uh, excited when Marvel uh, called and offered me the book. Uh, I already basically had ideas ready to go. Sometimes. Awesome. Which which is great because normally you know you get offered a book and you're like oh shit what am I going to do with this and like you got to <laughs> go away and sort of do some research and really kind of you know, think about it and meditate and this one like I had a pitch I think maybe same afternoon right from my editor oh yeah <laughs> all right so so from what I know the plot is about a young girl named Theta whose whole family is murdered by a predator and that it's basically going to be her revenge story. Is this gonna be? Is this a a, a mini series, a limited series, or is it a is it a ongoing? Uh, you know what? Uh, I don't know at this point. Uh, right now, all I know is it's coming out finally. Um, so, <laughs> July sixth, right? Uh, yes. So right now, the first arc is six issues. So like you know, I've got that sort of sorted. Uh, and yeah, it's about Beta. Uh, the family's quite that when she's younger, she's about uh, twelve when it happens. And then she, they're part of an exploratory mission. And she ends up like stealing the ship because uh, no one's left. She doesn't really oh, yeah. steal it, but the ship is supposed to take her back to Earth and she's able to, to sort of program it so she doesn't go back to Earth and sort of spend the majority of the story. She's about 27. It's mm-hmm. been about 15 years since it's happened and it's been just hunting predators throughout the galaxy. Oh, uh, awesome. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's about 15 years. You definitely, when we, when we see her, uh, when she's older, you can see the scars and the, the hardship of hunting these things down. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's the, the that's the initial sort of setup for it. Um, yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, it is it's 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 quite the deviation from what most would call a typical predator story, if I'm understanding it right. So, what made you choose the direction for this? Um. You know what I so I think predator stories work best, you know, when you have a like a, a predator that's sort of in the background and we don't know necessarily a ton of them about them and they're sort of more like a boogeyman. Um, and I just think we'd already seen a lot of stories 
where you know creditors come to earth and start hunting people and stuff. And you know, when I started writing this, the one thing I, I thought was that we haven't really seen stories where a person is out there hunting predators, you know, that they're mm-hmm. they're going after the predators rather than than reacting to the predators being there. And it just felt like a, a nice setup for uh, for what I hope would be like a pretty fun and uh, memorable sort of predator uh, predator story. And yeah, that was basically it. Just wanted to flip the table, you know, flip it flip it a little bit and, and uh, sort of reverse it. Have the have the demon as a boogeyman. That's awesome. I'm 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 looking forward to it. I can't wait. I read the older Predator titles from way back in the day. Sure. They they tried to mimic the 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 movies in a sense, and um, they didn't quite fall quite right. At least not with me. But I'm I'm really looking forward to what you've got to offer because it sounds original and coming from a Predator fan that that makes me really look forward to it. Especially um, with Kev Walker, who I think is just yeah. going to be so his, great for the project. His stuff on this has been just like jaw dropping. Like he's a he's a great artist. Like, but uh, you know, there's no surprise there. But holy god, when you see the pages coming in, oh man, just, just uh, and he really like one of my favorite things is he really uh, like gives so much thought to every everything like you know like you know, have when i have data uh, on the spaceship mm-hmm. um you know and I, I describe it sort of you know as, as it's not a warship it's sort of a it's just an exploratory ship and i gave you know some of the rooms it has and everything and then he sent back like this incredible like 3d rendering of the spaceship and he <laughs> he asked me at one point what sort of propulsion system the spaceship had on it uh and i was like <laughs> like, no, no, it just moves through space. Uh, uh, but so he like he really gets like um, right in, you know, right into the nitty gritty of everything, and really uh, plans out everything and thinks you know, of just every sort of minute detail, uh, and it really shows on the page. It's just incredible. Absolutely, he's just got like this this great, almost like a mesh of Corbin and and Bisley that I mm. think just works so well for. You know, strange creatures and, and space um, type stuff. Uh, it, it's it's a total like nerd processing question, but do you know who's coloring the book? Uh, yes, uh, Frankie. Oh my god, I don't know his last. I know his last name, but just give me one second here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll edit this out for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Frank Darmada. Oh yeah, yeah um, he's amazing. So I always get messed up because his name is actually very close to uh, 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 one of the planets in the book. So <laughs> I, keep, I, I keep mixing them up. Anyway, so yeah, he's coloring. He's doing an incredible job. Awesome. It's been great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for that one to come out. I can't wait for the annual. I can't wait for volume two of The Violent. Yes. <laughs> one day, oh, I hope, man. I hope. Yeah, I, I really do hope that, that that can come out someday. And I, I hope you guys get... Uh, Tom Muller back to, to do the designs. If you can't yeah. tell, I'm a, I'm a total nerd about the whole processing stuff and seeing that Tom Muller, who funnily enough did a lot of the redesigns for the X-Men stuff was sure. doing the stuff for the violent was just super cool because his designs are always awesome. No, he's on board or like we've got the whole team back together again. Oh, man. Uh, 
uh, a colorist who is sort of like uh, not uh, Mike Garland, who's not doing a ton of comic book coloring right now, is still still on board for it. Uh, so yeah, it's, a, it's the original team. Yes, it's gonna be great. One day it'll be great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, did either of you have any final questions for Ed? Um, I think I'm good. Again, thank you just so much for for sticking with me all these months that I've been badgering you no, no, about an boss. interview. No, no, no. I mean, I I, I know I, I felt like I'd kind of been on you about it. Like, okay, one of these days we're going to lock down the time. And we finally did. And I was just so excited about it. So again, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time out to be with us and just Hello, answering all our questions and, 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 uh, and chatting with us. Absolutely. Happy to do it. I did have one final question yeah. because of how much I love the violent and beyond the breach and your issue of silver coin. When are we going to get to see you write something underneath DC's horror imprint? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I have not had that conversation. At you all need to have it. that conversation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Would love to do it. I, I do have a horror book that I am planning that's a greater oh, yes. thing. Uh, when, when that happens, I don't know. Uh, but it's uh, very early stages of doing it. All right. Well, I suppose that is all the time that we have for the day. Again, thank you, Ed, so much for lending us some of your very valuable time. Um, well, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Uh, listeners with talented creators like these, it's important that we that we remember to support them. Pre-order books at your local comic shop or wherever it is that you buy comics to make sure that quality comics keep on coming. You can do that starting with Deathstroke number 10, the upcoming Batman annual and Predator as well. Once again, thank you, Ed, and thank you listeners for this episode of Not A Robot Comics. As always, there's only one way we say goodbye around here. Be good to yourself, be good to each other, stay human, and don't be a robot. Just happen.